I know that not all of you come in via the parking lot, but for those who did come in via the parking lot, did you see we have a submarine in our parking lot? Not too often that a church gets to have a submarine in its parking lot. It's kind of an odd thing. Some of you know why it's there, some of you do not. Let me give an explanation as if there could possibly be an explanation for a submarine in the parking lot. Um, yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, this place uh, was the site of a memorial service for Tim Caparella. And as a result of that, the family brought a number of things that speak about Tim's life. And uh, so there were a number of things, plaques and pictures and um, several items that were in here. And that is Tim's submarine. He was a submariner. I think that's the phrase that is used. And I understand from what Tim said that um, there were times when he would take that submarine that he kept at his house and he would actually put it in the water in the swimming pool that was behind his house. You can't go very far in a swimming pool, about 10 feet forward, and then you have to stop and back it up and do it all over again. I understand that they are not submarines that I'm familiar with where you get in and you batten down the hatches and tighten everything up and make sure that no water gets in. This is a submarine that is intended to flood full with water. You have some kind of uh, breathing apparatus device like a diver would wear and the cabin becomes flooded and it then is buoyant based on that equilibrium between the weight of the submarine itself and the uh, buoyancy of the water. And that's not like any submarine I've ever seen or been around, but it is certainly something that made Tim's home unique. What's unique about your home? My wife and I, when we were first married, our first year of marriage, we moved into an apartment, and this apartment building had eight apartments that all had the identical floor plan, and they were all furnished apartments, meaning that they had a bedroom, the bed, the dresser, a couch, a chair, and a coffee table and a dining room table. It was a pretty small place. You could um, reach and get something out of the refrigerator, put it into the stove, turn the stove on and never leave your seat at the dining room table. It was all right here. It was interesting, you would think, identical floor plans and furnished apartments that all eight apartments would look exactly alike. They did not. I certainly was not in all eight apartments, but I was in a number of them. And it was amazing with the same layout, the same furniture, how dramatically different each apartment looked, rearrange the furniture, bring in a couple extra pieces, put different things on the wall, different way in which the layout changed the whole character of these small little apartments. But I'm telling you, no two looked anywhere near alike. What is it that makes your home unique? 
different from every other place. I know you've personalized your space, whatever your space is. I have a friend whose sister and brother-in-law built a home up in Central California. They had a nice piece of land, and um, they were able to build the home in ways that they kind of dreamed of building. And one of the incredibly unique characteristics of this home was that you would go upstairs into the second floor, and there was this long hallway, and you could go to um, the bedrooms that were on either side of the hallway. But at the end of the hallway was a, a unique um, feature. You don't usually have a, uh, I'm not sure what to call them other than wardrobes, where you can, it looks like a huge, giant dresser that you can open up and hang things in. Normally you find those in a room, but this one house had it in the hallway, and it was a, a large one, and it um, had the unique characteristic patterned after the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe of C.S. Lewis, that as you opened up these doors, there was a step up and then a step through the back of the wardrobe closet that led to a very short staircase up onto the roof where you could look out over the valley that was behind them. It was a kid's dream come true. I mean, they, like the best of the best. I always had this dream as a kid of having a fire pole in my bedroom. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now because we live in a one-story house, so it wouldn't go anywhere. You just get on the fire pole and stand. But when I was a kid, I lived on the second floor, and I just had this this thought how great it would be to have a fire pole that you could just, when mom said breakfast was ready, you just down the fire pole and there we are. I'm mom, I'm ready for breakfast. Just zip that fast. I've never done that, but I still have a few years left to pull that off. I, I did, for one of my girls, um, hang a rather large hammock above her bed in her bedroom so that she could have... Uh, kind of a different experience. I never got to have a hammock as a kid in my bedroom, and I think I probably used my daughter's hammock more than she did, but that's okay. It was probably my dream more than her dream. Did you know that God's home has some unique characteristics? Very unique characteristics. We're told in Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, that Jacob had left his mother and father's place and was going to his relative Laban, and in route he stopped. And he had this vision. It was a vision of a ladder or staircase that went from the earth up to the heavens. And angels were ascending and descending on it. And we find in verse 17 that Jacob, when he kind of comes out of this vision, makes a bold declaration. He says, certainly this is the house of God and the portal to heaven. Apparently God's house has a really tall ladder. They didn't consult me. I think a fire pole would have been a lot better. But 
I'm not sure it had been very easy for the angels to get back up after they came down. So maybe it was much smarter that they went with the ladder. Why all this discussion about the unique characteristics of your home or God's home? Well, the passage we're looking at, the one that was just read a few moments ago and was read at the very beginning of the service, is Psalm 114. We are in a series in the book of Psalms. When we come out of this, we're going to step into the New Testament letter to the Philippians. But we looked at Psalm 149 last week and talked about singing a new song. This week we're in Psalm 114. And Psalm 114 is part of a collection of about a half a dozen psalms called the Egyptian Hallel, which really simply means the, the Hallelujah Psalms. Kind of like a Hallelujah Chorus, except there are several of them. And they all speak about the story of the Israelites and their coming out of slavery and out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. They're powerful psalms. They're very beautiful, very poetic. And they became part of the Jewish tradition whereby these psalms would be sung at the time of three different Jewish festivals or feasts. One of those being Passover. And so during Passover, this collection of psalms would be sung. So it is very likely that when Jesus celebrated the Passover at the Last Supper with his disciples, that this series of songs would be part of that evening celebration. Two of them would probably be sung before the meal, the rest afterwards, which leads to the strong possibility that this psalm, Psalm 114, would be sung about the time that Jesus is breaking the bread and sharing the cup with the disciples. It's a story that depicts what's happened to the Israelite people. It says that Israel came up out of Egypt. That Jacob came out of a people who spoke a different language. That Judah has become God's sanctuary and Israel has become his dominion. It talks about the seas being pushed back and the rushing waters coming to a stop. It speaks about the hills being like lambs and the mountains like rams. It asks why all of these huge factors of, of uh, God's creation that seem so unchangeable. Not that the weather doesn't change, but that nobody can control that. Why would the waters retreat? Why would the rivers stop? Why would the mountains shudder? Well, it's God. And God's even bigger than all of the things that we see in the world around us. But I'd like to go back, if I could, to that second verse where it says, and Judah becomes God's sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? We think of a sanctuary as a beautiful cathedral. This place becomes a sanctuary when we worship. 
um, one of the other two places where we sometimes gather. A sanctuary, very simply, is a safe haven. A safe place. You can have a, a bird sanctuary where they can live with no fear of people coming in and disturbing their habitat. You can have an animal sanctuary where hunting is not allowed. We can provide sanctuary for those who have um, escaped from persecution in another country. It is a safe haven. It also is depicted in Scripture as God's dwelling place or God's home. That's been one of the things that Scripture writers, particularly the ancient writers, speak about over and over again is where is it that God dwells? How might we find God's dwelling place that we might visit God or be with God or seek out God? And so at various times, various locations were declared to be God's dwelling place, God's house. They met God on the mountain, or at least Moses did, and that became God's dwelling place. They created a tent of meeting so that God might be able to descend and meet with God's people. It is, to a great extent, the story of Scripture that this dwelling with God moves from what happened at the beginning of Genesis, where there was communion in the garden, and then sin got in the way, and Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, that relationship or fellowship was broken, because that's what a house implies. Maybe I should say that's what a home implies, or at least our understanding of it. The size of a house doesn't really matter in terms of how it compels us or draws us in. Recently, I had the chance to go see a rather extravagant house, the Hearst Castle up in San Simeon. San Simeon, um, it's about all there is there, is this house. And extravagant is probably an understatement. It's really hard to describe this place in terms of its extravagance. Um, rooms upon rooms and things that were so far ahead of its time when it was built, these gorgeous indoor and outdoor pools that you've seen on commercials, the in one with the gold inlay tile that's magnificent in every way. The thing is gigantic. What I find very interesting and sad, though, is at the end of Hearst's life, None of the children wanted the house. Now certainly it's true that the cost of upkeep is one of the significant factors because the size of uh, the crew that needed to keep the house operating and the cost of utilities. But the Hearst family fortune has certainly not been destroyed. They are still among the wealthiest in the nation and probably could have continued to maintain that house. But none of the children were interested. I'm thinking, based on what little I know of the story, is that it didn't feel like their home. Their parents had separated. They spent most of their time with their mother in New York. 
and would come visit their father and often meet there at the castle, but I'm not sure that it ever felt like home. Because what it means to really have a house that becomes a home is that relationship happens there. And size of a house is not the issue at all. I have been in some very small dwelling places and have been struck with the love and kindness, concern for one another. I've been in places where there weren't floors as I'm familiar with them as floors and was startled as I would watch those who would dwell in those places sweep out their homes. And my initial thought was, you're sweeping a dirt floor and there's just more dirt underneath. But then I quickly realized this was their dwelling place, the sacred place where relationships took place, where love happened, where meals were shared. And to keep it sacred meant that you take care of it in that fashion. And it really did feel sacred. We know that God's house from Scripture is called a house of prayer. And very often we think of prayer much less like relationship. We think of prayer far more like a mailman who drops off mail at the house. If we happen to be working out in the yard, we might say hi to the person who delivers the mail as they drop it off. But more often than not, we're off at work or inside the house and we come to the mailbox later in the day and we see evidence that the person who delivers the mail has been there, but there's no interaction, there's no relationship. That's often how we view prayer, that somehow we are hoping God shows up and drops off some kind of an answer or some kind of communication. But God's house is not like that at all. God's house is a house of prayer and prayer implies relationship. That's what scripture tells us. Which means that it's not at all like somebody dropping off the mail. It's like somebody coming into the house and dwelling together. Prayer ought to be like that for us. I'm sorry, I shouldn't offer oughts to you. It feels to me like prayer should move us into relationship. That it ought to be a place where I am known and I know God, where I hear and where I am heard, where I love and where I am loved. So here we have two characteristics so far of God's house, God's sanctuary. It's got some kind of a ladder. I'm not sure I fully understand that, but it denotes that it is a connection between the kingdom of heaven and earth. A place where earth meets heaven. We also know that it's a place of prayer, a call to relationship. What does this psalm tell us, though? In verse 2, it says, Judah has become God's sanctuary. God's dwelling place. This is quite a contrast to what has been written before this, where there is this search after where God might be on the mountain, in the tent. Do we establish a 
a place, a physical location in addition to our homes where God might dwell. This passage is saying that God's dwelling place is Judah. Now in this passage is probably referring to the clan or the tribe or the family of Judah. That that's where God dwells. But our New Testament tells us that yes, that's true. But it also means, as a result of what Christ has done for us, that you personally become God's sanctuary or dwelling place. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. The Hebrew writer is talking about the ways in which Christ has been faithful, that God is the creator of all things, but Jesus has established God's house, and Hebrews 3, 6, we are God's house. The gospel writer John says, I'm going so that I might send the one, the spirit, who might not only dwell with you, but dwell in you. So as unsettling as this might be, God's house has some unique characteristics because it includes you. God's house apparently has a whole lot of rooms, each one of us representing God's dwelling place. So I guess each one of those rooms is unique. Mine is certainly under construction. And I fear a bit that I have gone long periods of time without allowing the remodel to move forward. I mentioned earlier the submarine that was out in the parking lot as part of Tim's memorial folder on the back was what was described as the Submariner's Creed. And it, and it makes reference to those who are part of the submarine in some ways become one with the submarine itself. That the person who operates it and the thing that is being operated works so closely together that in many respects it's difficult to separate out the submariner from the submarine. Oh, that that were true in my life's journey. If I am the vessel or the room in which God dwells, wouldn't it be wonderful if it became difficult to distinguish between me and that which dwells within me? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that inner working were so close, so intimate, so tight that somehow this vessel that contains God's Spirit looked like God's Spirit at work. I'm afraid that far too often it's very easy for people to distinguish between the two in my journey. But if I want to be that dwelling place for God, then I need to give attention to what that means. 
I don't know what it means for you, but I will tell you that it leads me to some very important implications. I think it matters in my journey how I take care of this vessel. I think it matters if I'm going to be a steward of God's house and I am God's house, what I put into my mouth, what I put into my eyes, what I allow to enter my heart, what I listen to with my ears. I think it matters the things on which I dwell, the priorities that I set, the things that I choose to do on a daily basis. I think it matters. I think it matters because if God's dwelling there, it's sacred space. So how do I treat sacred space? God doesn't force God's self upon me. I can say no to all of that. But if this passage, Judah, becomes God's sanctuary, Israel, his dominion, if I want Hebrews 3.6 to come alive in my life, if I want this place to be God's house, then I need to take on co-ownership for this dwelling place. Now, I want to acknowledge that there is a really important component that has to do with what this looks like to go collectively as the church what it looks like for us to care for individuals who are in need, to provide crisis care kits, to provide resources, to go there ourselves and make a difference. But there is a portion of this journey that is our one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, and this contains both components. There is this personal responsibility that we have, because if we don't take ownership for this personal responsibility, then it affects what we do collectively as the body of Christ. And to just displace all responsibility for the larger body of Christ and not take any ownership myself makes the whole process so much weaker, so much less effective. But if I will begin to take responsibility for my journey and then take what is the overflow out of this and add my experiences to the body of Christ, what we can do collectively is far more than we could ever do individually. And that's what this calls us to is to individually be God's dwelling place, collectively to be God's sanctuary, so that we might pre present a safe haven. So that others might see the portal to heaven. I don't know what this implies for you. I just know that there are implications. And so I invite you this morning to consider the implications for you to be God's dwelling place. Father in heaven, I lift up to you our request. And it's this dwell in us. Let it cause a new song to come forth. Let it not just be a coat of paint, but Lord, a remodeling a room under construction, 
but a room where you're dwelling even while it's under construction. A place where you live that we can join in and partner with you. Being good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. Knowing that if we will allow you to transform us so that we become your sanctuary, (laughs) where it's actually safe for you to dwell in us, that we might become one with you, and that then others might find in us sanctuary, safety, a haven. Let it be so, Lord. Let your spirit be with us right now and help us to consider all of the implications of what this week might look like if we really gave attention to the house in which you dwell. Thank you, Lord. Amen.